Hello and welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Data, analytics, big data, data science, machine learning, customer insight, behavioral science, blockchain, data ops, data engineering, agile working, phew, too many terms, too many things to think about. Do you as a leader need somewhere to turn, to hear what other leaders are doing, to hear what really makes a difference in your business? Welcome. The Customer Insight Leader Podcast is here for you. Each episode, we'll be interviewing a different leader in the fields of customer insight, data, and analytics to hear what they really do, what really makes a difference. So settle down, get that cup of coffee, and enjoy the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast, a place to hear from today's leaders in the fields of customer insight, data, and analytics. I'm your host, Paul Lockley, and with me today is Ben Diaz. Ben is currently leading the delivery of EasyJet's data strategy, aimed at realizing the company's ambition of becoming the world's leading data-driven airline. He previously worked at Royal Mail, Tesco, and Unilever, so in total, he's got over 15 years relevant industry experience. And having started his career as a hands-on data scientist, Ben's more recently focused on building and leading teams, applying the lean startup approach to data science and analytics in large organizations, a topic we'll, we'll come back to. Ben's also experienced in setting up and managing research collaborations between academic and business partners. He's actively engaged with the UK mathematics community, and he holds a PhD in computer vision and an MSc in mathematics and astronomy, both from UCL. Whew, impressive. Welcome, Ben. Thank you, Paul, and hi to everyone listening. I'm really excited and quite honored, really, to be here. So thank you for having me. That's very nice of you to say so, Ben. You're welcome very much, and I'm delighted to have you on the show as well. I hadn't actually realized till I, I read your background and we, and we spoke before uh, that we both studied astronomy, although mine's just a humble bachelor's degree, perhaps a, a great background for analytical thinking. Anyway, um, on to our conversation. I think you've listened to a few of our past podcast episodes, Ben, so you probably know that I always start by getting our guests to give us their career story, their backstory, if you like, so listeners know where they're coming from. So let's do my time-honoured first question. Could you tell us a bit about your career story and how you've developed into the data science leader that you are today? Yes, of course. Um, I guess it all started from the time when I was about 10 years old. And if anyone asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I'd always say that I wanted to be a scientist. And oh. what really excited me about being a scientist, even way back then, was the thrill of finding a new solution to a problem mm. that leads to something real that I could see or feel. Mm. So, you know, I loved physics and chemistry experiments, for example. But my first love was always mathematics. So my parents were both maths graduates and well, so it ran in family as well. <laughs> Um, but I grew up in Sri Lanka, uh, and there are kids my age didn't have access to computers until I was about in my teens. Hmm. Right from the start, I remember when I first got my hands on a computer, I was more interested in learning how it worked <laughs> rather than for games on them. Right. So my curiosity led me to kind of learning how to program, and I taught myself a lot of it. And it was only then that I found my true calling where you know, I was able to bring mathematical solutions to life through a computer. And that mm -hmm. was exciting. Mm -hmm. 
So when I got a, a scholarship and a chance to travel to England to study for my first degree at UCL, what I really wanted to do was a maths and computer science degree, but unfortunately I couldn't afford it because that was the most expensive degree at the time. Wow. So I chose to do mathematics and astronomy instead because it sounded really interesting. Hey. <laughs> but they, they, because it was a joint degree, they didn't really allow me to do many astronomy experiments. So that kind of put me off astronomy a bit. And so I ended up talking to a professor called Bernard Buxton in the computer science department. And I convinced him to let me do my final year project with him <laughs> on computer vision. I used statistical, statistical modeling techniques to build a facial expression recognition model for full frontal face images. And that was like fascinating. It was a, a great success as a project. And that is when I really became a data scientist, I feel. And I knew at that time that was what I wanted to do as a profession. Uh, so I applied immediately to do a PhD with Professor Buxton. So we worked on extending my facial expression recognition model to beyond just the frontal view images. So it could cope with any image from any uh, viewpoint. Um, and so I got to use multi-view geometry and tens tensor algebra, all the great fun stuff. <laughs> At the time, I wasn't really sure whether I wanted to work in academia or industry after the PhD. Mm -hmm. So between my PhD and my undergraduate degree, I had a chance to work um, at one of Unilever's R&D labs in Sharnbrook in Bedfordshire. Uh, there was a summer internship on offer, so I grabbed it. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. you know, I was hired to do color calibration on digital images of food, really. Uh, it was for quality control purposes. Right. Ended up talking to lots of people and ended up developing a pattern recognition model in MATLAB those days <laughs> to identify this unique molecule that developed in X-ray images for a new product that Unilever wanted to file a patent for. Uh, they needed a way to be able to defend the patent before filing it. And so mm -hmm. the molecule recognition algorithm was just what they needed. And it was really exciting. Mm -hmm. uh, so my three months summer placement ended up going for around nine months. And by then I knew I really wanted to be working in industry. Mm -hmm. uh, but I really wanted to do my PhD as well. So I, I, I went back, finished my PhD because I wanted to learn be get actually get trained in how to solve new problems that no one has solved before. Yeah. So I finished my PhD and came back to Unilever and they hired me as a research scientist because back then data scientists didn't really exist as a job title. Indeed, yeah. But I was I was doing data science from the start, like for example, developing new recommended systems algorithms for the grocery domain. That was exciting. Uh, but my passion for learning and personal development never stopped. And anyone who knows me knows I'm a learning junkie. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Podcasts, TED Talks, reading, you know. And Unilever really invest in their people. And so I made maximum use of their amazing learning opportunities there. So I continuously improved my technical skills. But also I, I didn't forget those softer skills like leadership and communication skills. Mm -hmm. And this helped me then work my way up the ranks and I ended up leading the maths and, S maths and informatics research team there for over a year before we were all made redundant in the end as the business priorities changed. And mm. it was scary at the time, but actually that was one of the best things that happened to me in my career because it forced me to really think about what I wanted to do with my career. And that was the first job I landed after my degree, my PhD. 
So it's like I wasn't really looking out anywhere else, mm-hmm. <laughs> but this mm-hmm. forced me to look out there. And you know, at the time, generally, we were really hard to get hold of any data because you know, they sell things through the retailers. So we always had to partner with the retailer to get access to data. So at, at this point, I jumped at the opportunity to join Tesco. Right. Because they had a, a role and offer to develop a forecasting algorithm for what was Tesco Direct, their non-food business. Mm. And uh, they had lots of data available. So it was a good opportunity. So I jumped at the opportunity. And you know, we were initially a small team. And we were called commercial scientists, because again, data science wasn't really. <laughs> uh, but that was a time when data science started becoming a mainstream job. And so during my time there, we transformed ourselves into the data science team for Tesco. Mm-hmm. And my time at Tesco was a fascinating learning experience. And we did all sorts of experiments. Like We were like a startup within the larger organizations. So basically... Right. We had to do everything, you know, we set up the servers, we installed the applications, I was a server admin, a database admin, you know. Right, yeah, yeah. Building the models as well, and then building the UIs, all the fantastic, you know, JavaScript and D3, all all that stuff, fun stuff. But, you know, we also experimented on lots of other things, like how to hire good data scientists, how to structure a data science team, how to set up and run a data science project, you know, Mm. how to engage with the business. You know, the first few times it didn't work, but we tried different things and learned. And then how do you deliver value from data science? That that was an open question at the time. So we, we also delivered so much value while experimenting that we were able to double the size of the team every year while I was there. Right. I believe it continues to grow after I left as well because because people wanted more, they invested in heads. And so we doubled yeah. <laughs> the size of the team, which was amazing. It was really an amazing learning opportunity. You know, I learned a lot about data science and I also progressed to the highest level at which I could really remain hands-on in any way, technical. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was at a crossroads. I had to make make a decision about, you know, whether I remain at this level and stay hands-on or whether I move into the management side of data science in order to progress further. Yeah. Now, uh, I've never been one to stand still, of course. <laughs> so I, I consciously made the decisions. I didn't fall into it or, or you know, accidentally. I consciously made the decision mm-hmm. to go into management. But I decided I would do this differently. I would apply the scientific approach to management because I always wanted to be a scientist. You know? Yeah, yeah. I treat it as, pro- as a problem-solving opportunity, continue to run experiments and learn. And at, the, at that time, our head of data science, Gabriel Straub, he, he left to join a startup as well. So I was on the lookout for a company to start, um, you know, they were, where they were looking to start a data science team from scratch. So that mm. use all the learnings from my experience at Tesco to set up and run a data science team as a lean startup. Mm-hmm. which I thought was the, the best way to go for data science. Mm-hmm. So when the, the opportunity came by Royal Mail, I jumped at it and I put all my learnings into action and I really proved that the lead startup approach to data science really works. Right. Within 18 months, I had built a strong team of data scientists. We had also delivered significant value while setting the team up. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the key reasons why I chose to move to Royal Mail at that time, because they had a CDO, Rob Kent, in place, who had already spent a couple of years working with his advanced analytics director, mm-hmm. with 
consultancy was there. They laid the critical groundwork, you know, setting up a data warehouse with data in it, setting up reporting and analytics capability. Mm-hmm. The company was ready for data science. And yeah. all I had to do was focus on setting up the data science function. And that was the a key factor to my success there. And wow. I'm really lucky to also have an opportunity to run the data engineering team while I was there for six months. Okay which was another great learning experience. And then a combination of being really tired of commuting by train to London every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. CDO leaving kind of led me to consider another move. Mm -hmm. I came across the EasyJet role and I was completely blown away by the level of buying and ambition EasyJet had for making money data and I couldn't believe that EasyJet's ambition of becoming the world's leading data-driven airline was actually a central pillar of their business strategy mm-hmm. you know, that important and everyone from Johanna CEO down was behind it so you know and then you know to add to it the job was based much closer to home so I didn't have to take the train anymore <laughs> so of course I jumped at that opportunity and having initially joined just to transform their data science function a couple of years on, I'm now, like I said, responsible for the whole data team and learning the data strategy and the ambition. Mm-hmm. And I'm loving it. Yeah, I'm having mm-hmm. a lot of success doing it as well. That's me, I guess, in a nutshell. <laughs> well, thank, thank you, Ben. A really, a really engaging story. Thank, thank you for sharing that. And I can, I can hear the themes that come through of, of that, uh, that passion for learning, uh, that kind of engagement, particularly with the early stage. In, in, in several of the, the roles that you've done and the, the scientific uh, opportunity that you get there to, to experiment. I guess also he- hearing that, I was struck how much leadership has, has mattered to you right the way through. You know, several times when you've, you've told your story, it's been clear how much you benefited from other leaders and you had a, what you described that kind of desire to approach management as a scientist. So it clearly hasn't just been a, a falling into as you progress, you become a manager, it kind of just happens with time. It seems like there's something to management and leadership that's really attracted you and engaged you. Yeah, and then it's it's also the, the great experiences of good managers and also the good learning experience of having some bad managers as well. You know, you learn what work yeah. doesn't. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And so, you know, I, I was really inspired by, you know, some of my my line managers and my directors, the CDOs, CEOs, some, sometimes chief R&D officers and stuff. And then, you know, some sometimes I was reporting to people who didn't really get data or did yeah. science. It's really hard to do stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I wanted to make a difference, you know, in the data science management space. So that's why I not only <clears throat> did my experiments and tested and learned, but I also tried to do more presentations, write articles and share the knowledge as well so that yeah. we're widely known and we can make a difference together. Yeah, that that, that, that makes sense. It, it's another thing that struck me actually hearing your career story is I, I quite often have um, leaders, maybe even data science leaders on here who, when you hear their story, there's a real focus on theory and technical excellence, and maybe a much more academic background, I can think to, to some of the guests I've had on this podcast, or, or others who are really motivated by commercial application. And it, it's absolutely about the difference and being able to measure the financial impact or change the direction of the company. 
I think you're one of only a handful of guests I've had on this show who who still sound like they have feet firmly in both camps, the, the academic, uh, the theoretical, um, and the, the practical application, the kind of um, commercial side of that. Do you see those twin strengths as something that have helped you as a leader or does it hinder and frustrate you? How, how do you view that? Oh, it def- definitely has helped me. And, you know, I still enjoy a presentation with lots of mathematical equations on it. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it's, it's not only helped me as a leader, but it also helped me as a hands-on data scientist because in mm. particular, my transition from hands-on to leadership as well, it helped me with because, you know, I, w- I was always driven by the, the application, but I could do pages of algebra if I needed to, as long as I knew something was coming out at the other end, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, now I've, as a data leader, I find myself having to play that translator role, which quite a few of your guests have already said on this podcast, you know, yes. you the translator between business and technical teams. and. Mm-hmm. If you focus only on the technical aspects, then you tend to start with the most complex but beautiful model that you should <laughs> love to develop and usually can't be, can't be deployed within the business constraints. You know? Yeah, yeah. However motivated you are with, with the business application type of things, if you haven't got the technical depth, then you really don't know how much you can push the model, how, how far mm. you can get, mm. and model one is the best one. Uh, to optimize the benefits so you know as a data leader um having those twin strengths has helped me it, it helped me things with things like identifying the quick wins because i know what can be done what yeah you can go into etc um and for me i've found there's there's been an additional reputational trust factor that it's given me I immediately get that trust from both the data science team and the business stakeholders because they both sense that I can speak their language and I understand what they're talking about and I can explain things in a way they understand. Um, So it kind of helps me build trust quickly and get to solutions quickly, uh, which has really helped. So it's definitely helped me in my career. So I'm always encouraging, you know, the very technical people I come across to stretch themselves a bit to think, Mm business application and vice versa because it really makes a difference i think yeah good good point ben thanks for sharing that i I guess a number of the leaders i know who have got technical strength still uh uh, and absolutely benefit from things that you've mentioned a, a risk for them is it can draw you into micromanaging because you kind of have still kept your hand in in some ways at least mentally in the technical work, there can be a risk to be tempted to interfere or for your staff to feel like you micromanage them because they know you could do it yourself. How do you avoid that? Yeah, and that, that's a very, very good point and a very real threat to someone like me. And so what, the way I solve that is I create new problems that only I can solve in the team or with, with the management side of things or the strategy side of things. So that then I keep telling myself, <clears throat> if I spend my time solving the technical problem, this is going to suffer and everything's going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. So I need to let go and go do the things that only I can do. <laughs> so that, you know, I've, I've forced myself to create that that uh, roadmap of stuff that I need to do yeah. so that 
and it keeps me away from stepping in. But then, then you know, if someone's ill or one of my direct reports are ill or something and they need some support, I can always step in and, you know, for a day or two play that technical role and have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that makes good sense, Ben. It's nice. That, it, it nicely brings to life what you mentioned earlier about your scientific approach to management and leadership. But I, I like that. I like that um, you can frame in your mind the strategic and the leadership challenges that you need to be focusing on instead as intellectually interesting problems as well. I think sometimes intellectually very capable leaders um, try and force themselves to dumb down. Um, but I can see how you can position it that way and keep yourself interested genuinely in the application and the commercial longer term thinking to be done as well. Great. Thank, thank you. I was go, go on, Ben. It's all still new as well, so nobody really knows exactly how to do the, the, the management side of things. In data. So thinking of new ways of doing it, it's always uh, still available. Yes, very true. Very much an emerging discipline, still completely agree. I, I was struck as well, you, you talked a bit about the, the time at Tesco. You clearly had, had great fun there. And I'm, I'm conscious, a bit like I was when I heard about how, how soon you got to have the label data scientist, but how much you've been doing the work before. You, you were in a pioneering kind of cohort here who were doing the data science work before it was really acknowledged as, as that. And, and I'm sure lots of opportunity to, to learn by doing in, in the technical as well as, as well as the managerial. I wonder when, when you compare that experience of almost discovering what data science is by, by attempting to, to solve different problems, to what we have for graduates today who've often maybe started their career by going on a specific data science degree or, or master's. Do you think they have it better because it's all mapped out for them? Or do you think it was better to discover what the discipline is on the job by trying to solve problems? Just interested in your view. Ooh, that's, that's a great question, actually. <laughs> Uh, and um, being a pioneer is, is certainly not easy and not mm. for everyone. You know, some mm. people like me who get bored easily. <laughs> <laughs> you yes. need to be always pushing the boundaries and carving out new parts to do things. Mm. But then others prefer to follow existing parts, but then they optimize things along the way because you need both of those roles because you can't mm. optimize while you're building a new part. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, both of those are needed. But, you know, I... I definitely believe that you can't really learn everything you need to know about any job, let alone data science, without actually doing it in a real life scenario. And that's particularly true for data science, I feel. Uh, but in, in some aspects, the graduates today have it better because you know they're not starting from scratch. They're starting mm -hmm. from a knowledge base that's already built up. Mm -hmm. They can focus more on the, the practicalities and more on optimizing, optimizing their, their approach, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, but this, this very fact can create like a box within which they at least start off. And yeah. uh, that's when you know, they might miss out on the freedom that we had to think outside the box because we didn't mm -hmm. really have a box, you know. Yes. <laughs> So that's one thing they need to watch out for. And I tell all new graduates who join my teams and, and people I talk to, like, you know, it's great you learn the theory, but putting into practice, it's slightly different. So, you know, practice on real problems, but also keep pushing yourself to think outside the box. Mm. Because especially, you know, in our space, in the data space, things are moving so fast 
that learnings can become outdated quite quickly. So you need to make sure you don't stick to just what you learned on the degree and keep learning, keep pushing yourself. Yes, great advice. Great advice for those who are at that stage in their career at the moment as well. Thank you, Ben. Um, thinking of the, the kind of times in your career when you were you were moving on for, for a variety of reasons, as you shared, I was also um, noticing that you, in the drivers that you shared for making those moves, for selecting that next employer, there were a couple of things that I suppose may be quite important still for data leaders today to make sure they think about. Clearly, when we were talking about Tesco, the, the amount of data that they had um, that you'd have a chance to play with and, and use, the richness of that asset attracted you to Tesco. And clearly in, in Royal Mail, you were attracted by the groundwork done uh, by Rob and uh, as CDO and the, you know, the, the firm foundations that were there. Are those the two things you think data leaders should most be looking for when considering moving on to a data leadership position elsewhere? I think those specifics um, are personal to me, I think, and it depends on what you as a data leader want from your next role. Okay. Those specific choices were personal to me and, and fit my career goals at each of those points. You know, for example, when I joined Royal Mail, I wanted specifically to focus on setting up a data science function from scratch. So I didn't want to be distracted by the other issues like you know having no data available, etc. Got you. But if I wanted to do a wider data transformation from scratch, then I would have wanted to do that bit as well. You know. Mm. Mm. In the, in the data space here, we are really privileged to be in a position where we can choose where we work. <laughs> there are usually more jobs on offer than people to do them. So, um, and then, you know, I, I believe there's no better feeling than getting paid for doing something you love, right? <laughs> Indeed. The most important thing, you know, that comes to mind is to make sure you really know what you want from your next role and then mm. kind of go find the best opportunity that matches that specific career goal. Mm. Uh, but of course, I mean, if you want to do data science, you need to go where there's some data to do that with. Yeah. But, you know, at Tesco, you know, we set up the servers, we got the data in, we created the databases. And you know, if that's what, you know, floats your boat, you know, then that's what you need to look for. That makes good sense. Yeah. And, and a good call out to take that time out to think, what do I really want? It's something that's come up in the few leaders I've, I've mentored, actually. So you're right to call it out. It is possible to just kind of drift along in your career and respond to stimulus, to put it in a sort of scientific kind of way, um, rather than taking some reflective time to really think about how you want to grow, what interests and motivates you and have that that clear prescription, particularly, as you say, in a, in a market today where you're likely to have quite a number of choices. Indeed, yeah. And try different things if you're not sure. You know, mm -hmm. People say, oh, I don't know. <laughs> then yeah. try different things and see. You know. Yeah. Yes, indeed. The, the experimental scientific mindset still. I, I, I like it. Scientific approach to a career. Mm -hmm. Another thing you mentioned, Ben, and I, and I know that it's affected the way that you, you run things and, and you built on this foundation so you mentioned the lean startup some listeners may know that was a book that was that was quite quite famous and has influenced a number of people both um in the kind of growth mindset approach and in a more scientific approach to uh leadership and organization of of your team and processes uh, clearly it's a book that's influenced your thinking as well i wonder what you thought the most important lessons were that you've taken from that 
in adapting it to a methodology to suit data science, because it clearly isn't a book that was written to say, this is how you run your data science team. What have you taken from it and how has it influenced your thinking? Yeah, I mean, there are so many lessons I've learned uh, from adapting the Lean Startup methodology for data science. And, you know, I can talk for hours about it. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> no, go on. But, you know, um, I mean, the, the key reasons, so whenever I talk to people about why, why I chose the Lean Startup approach, the key reason, the why, is about uncertainty. You know, because mm-hmm. when we're doing data science, we're solving problems that may not even have a solution. We just don't know. We've got mm-hmm. to find a way of trying it so that we spend the least amount of effort knowing that we can't do it or we deliver it as quickly as possible. So, I mean, there, there are three high-level learnings. I, you know, I was trying to distill it in my head uh, recently because I gave a talk on this as well. And so the most important lesson I took away from the book was about getting the simplest possible working version of your model or algorithm or product or business out there in the hands of your stakeholders or customers as quickly as possible. Uh, Because this not only starts generating business value quicker, but it also Mm -hmm. generates valuable insights and learning feed into your development cycle and, and speed it up and the biggest plus as well is it generates significant more engagement from your stakeholders because yeah. they have they're playing with it they're using it and they want it more they want more of it so they want the next version and the next version so they give you feedback and that engagement is there uh, the second kind of lesson is about how to fail fast in terms mm. of is trying to tackle the riskiest part of the problem first. Mm. It's kind of like hypothesis testing in, in statistics. I set my mm. team up now so that they, I tell them, your job is to try and kill this project as soon as possible. You know, yeah. The mentality they need to have. Uh, because then if you fail, you fail fast. And if you deliver it, you deliver it as fast as possible as well. Mm. Uh, it's all about working through that uncertainty in the leanest way. I guess the third and final lesson that you know I, I pulled out was to define what done looks like uh, before you start any work. And in data science yeah. in particular, you can always improve the model and keep tweaking it forever. <laughs> so it's yeah. really important to define what done looks like before you jump in, because that saves you from running down any rabbit holes. You're always focused on reaching that done, that goal. And that makes it much more lean. And so kind of those three are the big lessons that I picked out. And of course, there's, there's a lot of detail underneath those on how to actually put it into practice. And, you know, I've freely shared this at conferences and there's a, a LinkedIn article if anyone's interested. But those are the three high-level kind of principles, I guess, mm-hmm. in the book. Thank you, Ben. Really rich advice there. I'd well recommend that listeners do do dig out that that, that article. The, I guess I'm reminded of, of so many things that often seem to be just different lenses on the same wisdom, if I put it that way. The whole approach to minimum viable products, a lot of the principles behind Agile would, would echo a, a lot of what you've shared. But I'm I'm struck that quite often in practice, leaders struggle with culturally getting the non-technical parts of their business to work that way. You know, it, it does, as you say, give the opportunity to, to move faster, to, to get, get a lot of engagement. But for an organisation that's culturally come from a, 
you don't make mistakes um you don't let people down and disappoint it it can be a kind of cultural barrier that the business has got to learn to work in a different way as well if it's really going to benefit from that kind of fail fast approach and that kind of get out a minimum viable product that will be so imperfect to begin to give you insights and to work with it have you found that you've needed to educate and take other business leaders with you to be able to work this way as well Oh, absolutely. And, you know, one of the first things I now start, you know, at the start itself, I, one of the key things you have to tell them is I'm never, I, I can never give you a, a target date, an end date or a, a time frame, a, a grand chart of how I'm going to deliver this data science project because of this uncertainty. So, you know, you have to, you have to change the narrative and there are several dimensions on this. You know, you have to get them asking questions rather than asking for data sets and dashboards. Mm-hmm. It them from, uh, you know, saying I need this and I need it in three weeks' time. Yeah, you know, it's like tell us. So what, what I do is I, I create a backlog-driven approach where you know the business owns the backlog, and the backlog is a backlog of business problems, business questions that need answers to, and they prioritize it with us will help them and we just pick the top one and keep delivering as as an as fast as we can and the promise is that we'll do it in this lean startup way so that if we fail we fail as fast as possible and you know as soon as we get something usable you get to use it and you know we, we iterate to it's done and then we move to the next one um, so yeah it's definitely a big culture change and and i found that it's not just the business and the IT people, the data team as well, sometimes need that culture change. Yeah, good point. They come from a PhD background, you know, they're used to building these beautiful complex models. That's what they want to start with. I said, no, 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 MVP, you know, you need to get this out within three to six weeks. You can then iterate to the beautiful model if it's needed, but we only add complexity if it's required to hit the the business value. Yeah. Um, And that's, that's, change in behavior for the data team as well so it's a culture change everywhere and you have to lead that from the front i've I've found as the data leader because otherwise you'll have it in pockets and you Mm. can work with your cheerleaders i call them the people who get it (laughs) will work with you deliver value but you won't change the business Whereas if you, especially when you have a mandate like an EasyJet, Johan, our CEO, is my biggest kind of supporter in terms of the data space, you need to change the whole culture of the business to think that way in an agile way and understand that why, because it's the uncertainty, not because we're lazy or we don't want to give you time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You just can't, it's not possible, you know. Mm. And, uh, you know, then, then, but you're going to maintain that engagement as well, because you can't just say, I don't know when I'll be able to do this, but I'll, I'll get back to you as soon as I have something. And you can't go away for three months and then come back and say something. So you, you keep that regular engagement, like every two weeks, at least you talk to them and explain the progress, etc. And, you know, Eric in the book, he talks about this concept of an innovation metric and he tells you to focus on something that's understandable by the business so not a G coefficient mm-hmm. or ROC uh, you know area under the curve or anything like that it's, it's like the percentage of customers you're letting down or something like yeah. that yeah. Sense, that you can track against and every two weeks you can tell them okay we made this much progress mm-hmm. 
we're not making progress, but they need to kill the project. Yeah. That's important. Yeah, that makes good sense, Ben. Thank you. And I, I love that focus on, on the business outcome, on the real world difference you're seeking to make. And yeah, funnily enough, listening to you reminded me years back, I wrote a blog post on the, the benefits of imperfection. Yeah, <laughs> completely, completely with you. Another thing you mentioned just before um, I forget to pick up on it was the opportunity you had to to lead a data engineering team at one point and to, to stick your finger in lots of pies, if you like, but get, get practical about that um, data management and infrastructure and data prep, data quality, all the, the, the practical IT issues that a data engineering team will wrestle with. I wonder what you took from that experience that still helps you as a data science leader. And, and I ask it because I feel these days there's a danger of graduates being kind of put into streams quite early of, oh, I'm going to have a data engineering career quite separately. I'm going to have a data science career and almost suggesting they're different types of people who never the twain shall meet. Well, let's sing against that. Have you benefited from being in data engineering as well as data science? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, like I said, at Tesco, we did everything ourselves. So, you know, I couldn't understand why the data engineers in the IT uh, department were so rigid in their ways. And, you know, they fought so hard against all the flexibility we were asking for as data scientists. So when, when the opportunity came up, actually, I volunteered to, to look after the data engineering team because I wanted to learn why, why is it like this? You know, there must mm. be... Uh, and if not, I'll change it. I said, yeah. <laughs> jumping in. And, you know, we stood up a whole new uh, Hadoop cluster while I was there. And then I, 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 it was a real eye-opener for me. You know, I immediately understood the why. And, you know, basically, mm -hmm. when you are a data engineer looking after things running in production 24-7, you need to have that strict, rigid process because you want to be as uniform as possible across the board. You know, any flexibility introduces complexity and risk. And you're on the hook because, you know, anything goes wrong, you get called, you know, 24-7. Whereas in contrast, the data scientists are trying to run multiple experiments, solve problems that haven't been solved before. So they need to have maximum flexibility, you know, how install new libraries and templates and stuff. So, you know, when I understood the reasons behind these kind of two polar opposite ways of working, you know, that's mm -hmm. when I was able to start thinking about, because I both teams reported to me now, it wasn't their problem or, you know, yeah. problem yeah. to solve. And so I, I started to think about, you know, how do we bring these people together? And so now I'm able to explain to the data engineers why the data scientists need this um, flexibility in the early exploration stage, you know, because, you know, we need to fail fast if required. We don't want to build really strong, uh, hardened data pipelines in the exploratory mm -hmm. stage because you spend three months and then throw it away, right, if, if you're failing fast. Uh, but then equally, you know, at the end of the data science process, when you've got a model that's working, you can't put it into production if it hasn't got all this, you know, mm. uh, rigid processes around it. Absolutely. So, sorry, go on. No, just agreeing, Ben, please go on. I was saying absolutely. I, I'm recollections of my own IT background as well. So what I've, what I've come up with is a, a way of uh, like a transition plan. And I, I kind of brought them together working from start to finish where everyone's doing their own bits so the data scientists can focus on the data science model the data engineers focus on the, the data engineering bits but they're all working flexible 
you know, uh, light touch governance mode at the start. And then as we progress, if we don't fail fast and we progress towards delivery, things get progressively harder, hardened uh, and more production ready. Yeah. So what we do is we start with the same templates that they need for production, but we fill them a bit lighter at the start because we don't know all the details. You know, we don't know how to do this thing. We're trying to learn, test and learn. Mm-hmm. And as we learn and, and develop, the, the templates get filled more and more and more. And by the end of it, we have a fully hardened project that can be delivered into production. So that that really helped me understand, understand the why people work in the different ways allowed me to kind of drag them both kicking and screaming <laughs> if you like because it's uncomfortable for data engineers to work in an exploratory way it's uncomfortable yeah. for data scientists to work in a, a production way so my data scientists you know I, I, I force them to move to scripts rather than notebooks as soon as mm-hmm. they finish the exploratory phase they write unit tests and everything so that you know they use git all of that is important they're not building prototypes anymore, I tell them. You're building minimal viable products. These are products. They have to go into production. They have to be used. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, the data engineers are happy as well at the end. The architects are happy. The governance people are happy. And it all works. You know? Brilliant. Nirvana, Ben. Um, but no, well, well done. I, I love that leadership attitude of I don't really understand why that isn't working, so I'll volunteer to take responsibility for it. And Lots of practical wisdom that makes sense to me there, Ben, as well. Sadly, that the, the time is against us. Um, so we do come to the final question I want to ask you, uh, an old favourite on this, on this podcast, because I find it's often quite insightful about um, the leader themselves, but also the continual learning journey of data leaders. And knowing you are a man very much committed or obsessed with learning and growing, I'm sure you have a good answer to it. So um, let me once again steal the question from Dave Stahoviak's Coaching for Leaders podcast uh, and ask you, can you give us an example of something you've changed your mind on in the last few years? Yeah, and that's that's a really great question. And, you know, because of my experimental way of working, I've done many things, but I I thought for for this podcast and the listeners, the the biggest lesson that I, I took away from my life so far is the importance of the grapevine and that's the thing i've completely changed you know, 180 degrees you know, early okay. i viewed networking being connected to the grapevine as a total waste of time <laughs> it would be better spent doing some work or, you know more as gossip and lazy people just sitting there. <laughs> you know but, you know, as I've progressed in my career, you know, I've, I've come to realize the value of networking and being part of that great part. And yes, it mm-hmm. takes but now I see it more as an investment rather than a cost. Because, you know, for example, you network people you don't currently work with, but that's an investment for when you need to work with them in the future. That yeah. collaboration is a lot better and quicker. Or you may just need them to help you influence someone else to collaborate with you. And, you know, all of that is important and just mm. tapped into the grapevine you you learn about all the things that are going on across the company you know about changes coming down the lines so you can protect your teams or you can mm. make good use of change and change is the only constant these days mm. so i'm always looking for opportunities <laughs> when change comes to transform something or the other so, you know, you, even though I'm still very much an introvert, you know, the analyst mm-hmm. sitting 
on and you know happy to have my headphones on recording <laughs> but you know i i proactively now invest my time in networking and talking to others both inside mm. and outside the company as well so it, it, it's not just about work so you really need to get to know people first yes yeah. when then you're able to help each other out whenever needed so that, that's the word the biggest thing i've done 180 degree turn <laughs> that's great that, thanks for sharing that and, and why ben i can completely agree with you and i i think i don't know if it's true for you but i know my own discovery in, in that has been what a warm and generous community uh, on the whole the data and analytics and data science leadership community is that when we take this view of being interested and engaged in that wider network there's a lot of people out there who generously give their time including turning up on podcasts like this uh, and help one another as well and, and share. And I think that's a great thing to be valued that we have as a community. Anyway, Ben, that's been great. Thank you very much for your time today. It's been, as I expected, a pleasure to chat with you. And I'm sure many people want to follow up on some of the things that you've mentioned. So thank you for sharing with us today, Ben. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Good. Glad, delighted to hear it. And thank you everyone for listening. I hope you found that helpful and continue to listen to the Customer Insight Leader podcast. More great interviews coming up. And each week, there's also fresh content on our blog, customerinsightleader.com. So you might want to check that out too. Before then, thanks everyone for your time. Have a great week. And perhaps you can reflect on how you might be able to take some of those three principles that Ben shared from the Lean Startup approach into your team or into your business. Bye for now, everyone.